This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Seek Reality Radio with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about your reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here is Roberta. There is one reality, one. Neither mainstream science nor mainstream religions can tell us much about it, really, because both are belief systems. One is atheistic and one is theistic, but neither is engaged in an open-minded study of the whole truth. Fortunately, though, a few among us have spent their lives studying the truth, and the only way we really can study it at, at this point, they're trying to better understand the communications from people that we've been receiving for nearly 200 years, uh, people who have just one perhaps inconvenience in dealing with us, and that's that we think that they're dead, but they're not dead. We know now that they live on and actually are more alive than they ever were in a reality that parallels our own. And what, they're t- what they tell us is this. They tell us that you are eternal. You're an eternal being. You never begin. You never will end. And you are perfectly loved. Our guest this week is Michael Tim. He's the most important living afterlife researcher. and He's one of my biggest heroes, so I'm thrilled to have him here with us from Hawaii. Welcome, Mike. I appreciate it. I'm so glad that we're finally getting to do this. Um, Michael has is someone I've sort of admired from afar for a long time and have only recently come to know because we're, we're both working um, on the board of the Academy for Spiritual and Consciousness Studies, and uh, which is having, as we've said, having a conference next July. So um, I'm going to be asking him questions, eager to hear the answers myself, because I've never heard them. And the first thing I'd like to know, Michael, is, how did you ever get started in this field in which you've become such an expert? Well, it, it just sort of evolved. I grew up as a Catholic, and I left the Catholic Church around age 33 or 34 and sort of drifted for about 15 years. And then sometime after age 50, I felt a need to get back to some religion, and uh, I didn't know what. I tried a couple of Protestant churches, and they just didn't work for me, and... Uh, in 1989, I had to go back to New York. I was the um, coach of the Hawaii running team. There's an international running event going on in New York, and each each state had a team, and countries had a team, and so forth. And I, I was the coach of the Hawaii team, and just coincidentally, my wife had a conference that same weekend in Atlanta, Georgia. So I. Uh, after the event in New York, I took a train down from uh, New York to. Atlanta and stopped in Washington, D.C. to visit a friend, and when I got back on the train in D.C., I looked for a book at the little bookstore there and didn't um, quite know what I wanted and didn't see anything that appealed to me, and as sort of a last resort, I pulled off a book about Edgar Casey, and uh, so I read that, and that um, that got me interested, and I, when I got home, I bought a, more, a few more books about Edgar Casey and read all about him and got into other books on reincarnation 
and that um, became my passion or so for the next year or so. And then I found near-death experiences um, and started started reading everything I could about near-death experiences and read some things on mediumship, but I didn't really get interested in mediumship until 1999. I, my wife and I were on a trip to uh, England and staying in London, and we went out for a walk one one day and walked about two, two or three blocks from the hotel we were staying at and came upon this Victorian house that had a sign in front of it that said the uh, Spiritualist Association of Great Britain. We had no idea what that was, um, but it said come in and had uh, a sign outside with different times on it as, as far as their events. And So we went in and found out that they had clairvoyant readings twice a day, one at 3 o'clock and one at 6 o'clock, and it happened to be about 2.30 at that time, and so we thought we'd wait around and get a clairvoyant reading at um, 3 o'clock. Uh, we paid uh, 6 pounds, which is about $10 a person uh, at that time, and and uh, there were about 15 people in the room uh, when a middle-aged woman comes in. She, she gets up in front of us all and sort of closes her eyes and says a prayer or whatever she does. And, and all of a sudden she started coming to people and saying, I've got, um, I've got somebody here named John for you, and he's telling me he's a former spouse. And, and other things were coming through, and the people were nodding, and it all seemed very meaningful to uh, the other people in the in the room. And she, I think I was the sixth or seventh person she came to, and she, she said, I've got somebody named George here for you, but he's not coming through very strong. Um, and so she, she, then she said, let me see if I can get more from him, and she closed her eyes, and no, I'm just not getting it, and I, I could not think of anybody named George. I, I, I had two friends named George, but I was reasonably certain both were still alive. And so she then switched to my wife, and she said, um, I've got somebody named George for you, but it's not the same George that uh, for, for the gentleman next to you. It's a different George. And he's telling me that... Um, you look like him. No, she said, no. Uh, people say you look like him. And that was very meaningful to my wife because she had an Uncle George, her father's brother, uh, uh, whose mother had told her that she looks resembles her, her Uncle George much more wow. than, than yeah. uh, she does her father. And they had, before he died, my wife, Gina, uh, had joked with her Uncle George about that, uh, and so that was very meaningful. In fact, prior to that, my wife was very skeptical, had never been to a medium, and didn't really know much about them. But that pretty much convinced her that something was going on. And then uh, uh, the medium said, I've got an elderly woman here that um, it looks like a grandmother figure that, that's telling me that you forgot your mother's birthday. Well, coincidentally, we left on the trip like three days before my wife's mother's birthday, and she forgot to wish her happy birthday or give her anything, and that was a factual statement. Yeah, uh, that's meaningful. Yeah, yeah. And so, anyway, um, as it turned out, everybody in the room seemed to get something meaningful that night except me. And I, I went except away George. Feeling, we don't know who George is. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt like the only failure, so... 
anyway, we, we, we drove around. We spent the next two weeks driving around England and Wales and Scotland and came back to London. Uh, and um, I decided I'm going to go back and try again while my wife went shopping at Harrods, which was not that far from where we were. So I went back by myself and um, different room this time. I think was the, the first time was the Oliver Lodge room and the, the second time was the Conan Doyle room. And uh, this time a different medium came in. And she was very elderly, uh, had a walker, and um, she got up in front. And she was even better than the first person, uh, at least seemed to be, with the other people in the room. And I was, I don't know, fourth or fifth one she came to, and she says, uh, there's a man named George standing right behind you with his hands on his shoulder, uh, on your shoulder. And uh, so I shook my head, I I shrugged, I don't know know, who that is. let me let me see. So she closed her eyes again, and she says, "He's telling me he's a former colleague that passed into spirit about twenty years ago of a blood-related disease, and he's telling me that he's glad that you have a job now that you like." Um, and it still didn't mean anything to me. I, I was expecting if somebody came through, I had I had a deceased brother, I had a couple of you know recently deceased uncles, and. I, I was expecting somebody, you know, very close to me to come through. Sure. Uh, but it, it didn't dawn on me until I left to get, to get that night, you know, thinking I was the only failure in the room. And I, you know, as I went to uh, back to Harrods to get my wife, um, all of a sudden it dawned on me. Uh, George Sato, a Japanese name, that uh, working here in Hawaii, um, he was a former colleague, worked for the same company as I did. He was a fellow supervisor at the time. Uh, he was not a great friend, but we went out on coffee breaks every, you know, twice a week or so, and we frequently discussed the job, which I really hated. I didn't like that job, and George knew it. And um, I left that company and went to another company, and about a year after I left the company, this was about 1979, I heard that George died. Um, All I heard was cancer, I think. But I couldn't remember at that time what he died of. But anyway, when I got back to Hawaii, I called a mutual friend, and I said, what did George die of? What year was it, and when when did he die? Well, he said it's 1979, which was 20 years before. It was 1999 that I had the reading, and uh, 20 years before, which the medium said 20 years, about 20 years ago of a blood-related disease. Well, it turned out he died of leukemia. Wow. Um, and he's glad that you um, have a job that you like. Well, that was the main subject when I, when I had coffee with him that we talked about my dislike for the job. And you know, when I finally left, he was disappointed I was leaving because we had bonded somewhat um, on that job. So anyway, that, that got me thinking about yeah that would yeah, certainly I, pique your interest yeah, yeah. so I, I started reading after i got back i bought as many books as i could on mediumship and and that became my primary subject after a while and still is my my primary subject i'm still interested in uh near-death experiences and out-of-body travel and and apparitions and i'm not so much interested in reincarnation these days um as i was in the beginning but um uh, I'm sitting in what I call my library here, surrounded by books. I've got so many books, they don't fit on the 
shelves anymore. They're piled on, on the floor around me, and my wife keeps getting after me to, you know, organize this room <laughs> so it doesn't look like such a mess. We, we both have the same problem. I've got so many books on this subject because uh, you, you sort of sort of need them, I think, to keep referring to. Because each time I learn something new, I, I kind of cross-reference it to other things I've learned. Right. Uh, I, I, I want to talk about the, your two most recent books. Um, the, the way that I met you, though, um, was, was with, with Through the Articulate Dead, which I loved. Um, it was published in 2008 and um, really gave me much more of a sense of how close the, the dead are to us before I really understood had had put it all together. Um, I had so much in my head, and you helped me to organize it until I eventually was able to write a book of my own. Um, but then in 2011, um, you you did The Afterlife Revealed, which I strongly recommend. And uh, it's now out of stock, by the way, again, on Amazon, so you need to get them more books. But oh. The Afterlife Revealed was published in 2011. It is the best book I have ever read on what happens um, after we die, what the process of death is, where we go, what we do. It's a, a wonderful, easily understood book. So I strongly recommend it to anyone who is remotely interested in that field. So how did you come to write that? Um, well, um, as you know, the articulate dead is more of the evidential things um, relating to after-death communication, and uh, so Stafford Betty, who's a good friend of mine, uh, he's a professor at California State University, uh, we talked about it and decided we were going to collaborate on a book about, you know, he, he's, I think he suggested we, that we need to write a book about, uh, you know, what the afterlife is like, not, so, you know, get away from the evidence and, and yes. talk about what it's like, and so... We started out, we, we agreed on how we were going to do it. I, he's he's going to write certain chapters and certain things, and I was going to write other chapters. Well, it just, as it turned out, our our styles were completely different. It was, it was difficult to mesh my writing with his writing. Uh, he, was, he was more of an ac- academic approach, had more of an academic approach to it, and I had more of a journalistic approach to it, and they, it just didn't work. So we decided to um, you know go our own ways, and he wrote The Afterlife, um, unveiled, and I wrote the afterlife revealed, <laughs> and uh, they came out about the same time, and and um, they say say pretty much the same thing, uh, but in different ways. Different we have different approaches to it, and and anyway, that's how it came about. That just just a, a feeling that there was a need to talk about you know what happens after we die, rather than give the evidence for what right. happens. Yeah, people are hungry. For, I think for that information. Um, one of the things I loved about your book is that it was so accessible. Um, the book that I wrote was deliberately intended for people who needed needed uh, the, uh, the information right then, needed it quickly, uh, needed something they could read in a, an hour or two. Uh, yours goes into much more detail, but in a very readable way. So people who have a little more time and need this information uh, really should read your book. There were things in it too that I didn't, I had never found. One of the things that fascinated me, as you know, when we do this research, the questions we would have asked a medium 20 years ago, nobody thought to ask, or, or 20 years ago, 100 years ago, nobody bothered to ask those questions. So we have to 
just keep looking for them. Um, one of the, the last things I was able to really convince myself of it was that these people are in a solid place because it was so obvious to them they were that they never mentioned it. And nobody asked the question. Uh, until until then, I found a couple of places where the people had said, well, uh, are you on a cloud or is it solid? Of course it's solid. It's as solid here as it is there. So then I would sort of slap my forehead and say, of course, how could I have thought otherwise? But one of the things that, that was in that book was the process of dying and the sense, I think of it as unvelcroing, but you described it rather beautifully, that our our energy bodies separate from our physical bodies and, and it felt like like strings were breaking to the mm-hmm. people who were dying. Where did you find that? Uh, there's a number of um, books. The Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, I think, oh. was one of my primary sources. And uh, a number of books by uh, by other mediums have described the process. That they're all pretty consistent. The so-called white cord, which even the Bible talks about, talks about the white cord. That it, you know, and, and we, you know... The thing about near-death experiences is that supposedly this white cord doesn't break. It still holds yeah. the body to um, the, the physical body to the spirit body, and it's, and death doesn't really take place until the white cord breaks. Wait, or silver cord, we sometimes. Sil- I'm, to it I'm as sorry, well. S- silver cord. Yeah, yeah silver cord. Yeah. And uh, this silver cord, uh, it's a little, little bit conflicting as to how it's attached to us, but most of them say it's attached to the solar plexus. Some say it's attached to the to the head, and some say it's yeah. attached to the um, head and the solar plexus. But you know, however it's attached, that that's what breaks uh, at that's the time of actual thing. death. Right. Yes, that's what that's that's what it actually happens. But when we come back, we're going to talk more about um, what death, what what death feels like, uh, and and what the first things are that happen after we die. And we're talking with an expert who can really tell us. My name is Roberta Grimes, and you're listening to Seek Reality on the Contact Talk Radio Network. We're going to be right back. eight, Roberta Grimes had an amazing experience of light. She spent the next 50 years researching the afterlife to try and understand what had happened to her. And the result is her book, The Fun of Dying. Find out what really happens next. Roberta's book is Cliff Notes to 200 Years of Abundant and Consistent Afterlife Evidence. It will show you why extinction is impossible for you, explain how you can enjoy the death process, and describe for you in wonderful detail the glorious heaven that awaits us all. Available on Amazon, in Kindle, and in print, The Fun of Dying will start you on a thrilling and life-affirming voyage as you learn the glorious truth about who you really are. If you've ever wondered why you're here, if you wonder whether God is real, if you wonder why life isn't fair or whether there's life after death, let Roberta Grimes help you learn the joyous truth about your own reality. Roberta has trouble with believing things. She's always wanted to know. So she spent decades studying nearly 200 years of afterlife evidence. In the process, she made some wonderful discoveries about God, reality, and your own eternal nature. The truth is better than your most optimistic hopes. 
Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes on Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Why wonder and worry when at last it's possible to know? I think one of the things that is most comforting about reading about the dead is that death is not a private thing at all. Um, We all are greeted by loved ones um, who come to us young and and healthy and happy and gather around our beds. Um, I'm sure that that reassures you as well, doesn't it? Because... um, it, you, you think of it as a natural thing. I mean, death is the most normal part of life. So why wouldn't we know how to do it? We seem not to know how to do it, though. Uh, it seems to be something we need help with. I, did, that, did that surprise you? Have you been surprised by, by finding that to be true? Well, I, I think I encountered first with near-death experiences. I mean, so many of the NDEs that were reported, people said they were they were met by you know, deceased loved ones, and then when I started re- reading books on mediumship, I was getting the same thing, so I'd, I was already prepared for it, so the mediumship books just confirmed what the near-death experience books uh, said, that we're greeted sometimes by, you know, a, a great many uh, deceased loved ones, and other times by one or two, and there's a period of time before they meet more, but uh, and it plays out in different in different ways, but uh, yes, I mean, uh, they do meet deceased loved ones. Um, I I think, I, and I've wondered why. Um, why, why. Why do you? Th- I mean, I guess my own sense is that we probably have to have people there we trust, or we won't be willing to leave the death scene and the the place that where we feel secure. We're going to a place we don't remember. Do you think that's why? Well, that's part of it, I think. I think there's a bond with these people, and it's one of the things people most want to experience in the afterlife is to see their their loved ones. So it, it seems only natural that that the loved ones would be there. Now, that we, we've been told that we only those loved ones that we've really bonded with will be there on a long-term basis with us, that... that Many of the many of our casual acquaintances and so forth might be there initially, but we might not see them again for a long time, or just run into them occasionally, much like we do here on the Earth realm. But um, the ones who are soulmates and whatever you want to call them, those are are there for us right from the beginning. So you you put all of this together uh, in part, I'm sure, by reading early 20th century communications, um, which which I did as well. Um, and t- tell me a little bit about what made you want to write about Gladys. Uh, actually, my friend is Gladys Osborne Leonard. Yours is Leonora Piper. But they're, they were all, they're, I should just say, and correct me if I'm wrong in anything I say here, but in the early part of the 20th century, and I guess the latter part of the 19th, there were a group of people, mostly women, who were extraordinary mediums. They were able to go into a deep trance, yield their bodies to their controls, and the control would speak. And the the information that came through them is unlike anything that I've been able to find since. 
um, it's a treasure trove of information and evidentiary information as well. And they were studied by science, by people who thought of themselves as scientists. They may not have been traditionally trained, but they were trying to develop evidence of what um, the uh, uh, the afterlife is. Basically, evidence that the afterlife is real, that we do survive death. And so... Um, uh, Michael has written a book, uh, which is just out this year, called Resurrecting Leonora Piper, How Science Discovered the Afterlife. And I love that subtitle because that's really what that period was about, wasn't it? That's that's when people were trying, in a scientific basis, to study um, what actually happens at death. Right. What what what, what made you choose um, Mrs. Piper? And, and please tell us that story. Well, it, it goes back, if I get can give a little history. I mean, it all st- seems to have started in 1848 with the Fox Sisters of uh, yes. Rochester, New York. Uh, uh, they heard some taps on the wall and on the ceiling and so forth and didn't know what was going on. And uh, they were, I think, 8 and 14 at the time. And and so they they were playing around. They, just, they decided they're going to tap back. And um, they figured out that a certain number of taps meant a yes and a certain number of taps meant a no. And then from there they went to, you know, like tapping five times meant an E and tapping seven times meant a, uh, a G. And, and so they, they began a little communication process and they told their parents about it and the parents checked it out. And, you know, it soon spread to their neighbors and outside um, uh, the whole Rochester area. And it, it just... Um, uh, seems to have spread around the world, and, and what happened, we're told by the spirit world, is that um, Emanuel Swedenborg and Benjamin Franklin, working together on the other side, figured out a way to communicate with us, with the spirit, with, with through these raps, <laughs> raps and taps. Wow. And this, this was at a time when when people were losing their religion, uh, the, the, you know, from Thomas Paine's books on rationalism in, in the uh, early 1800s, um, people were falling away from the church, and more and more people were being educated, and and um, the church just didn't have the hold on the people it had previously. And so the spirit world apparently felt there was a need to... Um, reinforced the idea that we do live on after death. And that's how it all began in 1848 with Swedenborg and... And, uh, um, and Benjamin Franklin is a ben, busy well, guy. Ben, Benjamin Franklin, yeah, he, he had died about 50 years before that. But yeah. uh, Francis Bacon, Lord, Lord Bacon, was one of the early communicators. And the first real researcher that I've come across uh, was... Judge uh, John Edmonds, who was a New York Supreme Court judge, he, his wife died in 18, late 1850, I think it was, and some friends had suggested to him that they, you know, he go to a medium. He, he thought it was all humbug, the word they frequently used back uh-huh. then. And right. uh, he says, okay, I'll go, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to prove, I'll show you what, you know, there's just so much bunk. Well, anyway, he went and had a very evidential reading, and that, that, um, uh, made him curious, and so he decided to, um, you know, go to other mediums. He, he ended up over a two-year period going to um, dozens of mediums. He recorded all his research and so forth, and there, there was no doubt in his mind after he completed his uh, research that that this was real, that it was not bunk. I mean, there there were fraudulent mediums around at the time, but... Um, 
uh, most of those that he sat with, something very evidential came through, and there's no other way to explain it other than that, that they had uh, some kind of ability. Uh, so Edmonds wrote wrote uh, his book in 1854, I believe it was published, and then Professor Robert Hare of the University of Pennsylvania, he, he approached it the same way. He, he was a man of science and had heard so much about this uh, new epidemic of, of uh, spirit communication that he was going to go out and and debunk it all. Well, anyway, he sat with 20, 23 mediums, and he became convinced that it was real, and he wrote a book on it in 1855. And then Alfred Russell Wallace, um, who not not many people realize it, but he's, called, he's considered the co-originator with Charles Darwin of the whole idea of evolution. Uh, he's been forgotten because... Um, he didn't write the book. Darwin wrote the book, but, but yeah, he was didn't really, have as good a publicist, right? He, yeah, right. He didn't have as good a publicist, and the fact that he was interested in this whole idea of spiritualism uh, made the rest of science frown upon him and sort of forget about him, uh, um, because that wasn't kosher to talk about spirits at a time when the world's being enlightened to true materialism. And uh, anyway, uh, um, a number of other people were involved in the early years, but in 1882, that's when the Society for Psychical Research in London was formed by um, a number of Cambridge scholars, and um, a formal organization was made to document these things and put them in peer-reviewed journals and and, uh, really make a science out of it. So 1882 was often looked upon as the... uh, the beginning of psychical research, although it went back to you know 30 years before then, and and then uh, in the United States, William James, who was professor of psychology at, and physiology at uh, Harvard University, became interested in it, and um, his mother-in-law and his sister-in-law came to him one day and said that they had a sitting with uh, this Boston woman named Leonora Piper, and they told uh, William James the very evidential information they got through her, and, you know, he sort of looked uh, some askance uh, at the whole process, but he said he'd go have a sitting with her and and, uh, let them know what what came through with him. Well, as it turned out, he got some very evidential information, and he was puzzled by it all, and he arranged for some colleagues to go sit with her, and some of them got information and some of them didn't. Um, but there was enough coming through her that um, that he, he felt it was worthwhile to uh, investigate her. He had formed the American branch of the Society for Psychical Research, with, which had its headquarters in London, and uh, he arranged for Richard Hodgson, who was a... Uh, an Australian who was living in London at the time and teaching at uh, London University to come over and be the executive uh, secretary of the SPR in in um, Boston and to primarily to investigate Mrs. Piper. So she was really the this is it, this is all started about 1885, and uh, so Mrs. Piper was really the first subject in the United States uh, to be subject to strict scientific investigation. I mean, Hodgson would arrange meetings with people to come and sit with her. He would not tell her their names, you know, give them any indi- give her any indication as to who was coming or anything about them. 
Um, and then he would sit there and record everything that came through. And then he would, you know, after the session, he would have a checklist and go down. Was this correct? Was this correct? You know, and and so it was all all recorded. And this went on for nearly 20 years. Hodgson sat with Mrs. Piper for, uh, on the average, three days every week. He would have been for he would 20, make 20 years? 20 years. Oh, my uh, goodness. Beginning in 1886, and actually and he died in 1905, so 19 years or so. But, uh, wow. Uh, it went on, and, you know, he was not the only person. He arranged for other scholars, Sir Oliver Lodge, uh, um, in England, was a well-known physicist at the time, and he spent um, several months uh, in sitting with Mrs. Piper to also, you know, verify, you know, the facts that were coming through her, and numerous other scholars. Now, the thing is that, um, you know, she wasn't always right. I mean, um, as you know, I mean, the information that comes through mediums is sometimes distorted, sometimes doesn't make sense. And so the, the, the debunkers, you know, look at this and say, hey, she's wrong here, she's wrong there, so she must have been wrong all the time. But she isn't. I mean, no medium is right 100% of the time. There's a, uh, a a process there in which they have to interpret what's coming through to them there, there are different types of mediums. I mean, Leonora Piper was a trans medium. She would go into a trance, and her so-called spirit control on the other side, this confuses people, but there are actually four four people involved. N- number one is the dead person who's communicating. Number two is the person on this side who's receiving the message. And then in between, you have the medium on this side, but there's also a medium on the other side. That medium is yes. called the, the control. Mrs. Yes. Con- Mrs. Piper's control in the early years was called Dr. Finney, P-H-I-N-U-I-T. Uh, he was said to have been a holistic doctor of some kind in France who died about 1850. And what, it, what exactly it is that these... Um, controls or what, what qualifies them, nobody seems to know, um, but only certain people on the other side are able to do this, just like only certain people are able to be mediums. So, I think uh, that they're psychic. In this, I mean, they're sort of like a medium who dies has this, has that ability still. That's what I've always assumed. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. And, they're, they're, and so what, they, what they're doing is they're getting the information from the, from the dead person, but they're getting it in a thought process. They're not verbally communicating the, the the dead person is or I'm putting quotes around dead um, person is communicating uh, thoughts to this per, other to this control he has to interpret those thoughts pass them on through the medium's mind he's actually taking over the medium's body and he's the one that's communicating dr. Finney is taking over mrs. Piper's physical organism and and um, is speaking through her using her vocal cords and so did he, he speak with an accent? He, he, was he, sp- French? he spoke with an accent, with a French accent, yes. Yes. <laughs> and um, so in, in the process, they call it the filtering process. It's going through Mrs. Piper's brain, and let's say if the communicating spirit gives a word that is unknown to Mrs. Piper, it's not in her vocabulary, then the... Um, Spirit control has a difficult time getting that word out, 
And um, so there, there were many times when the, the communication was distorted because because of this obstacle of getting getting things through the medium's brain. But there Isn't was enough of it that you know it was far beyond chance. I mean, no no doubt that it was beyond chance and or chance guessing. The uh, debunkers always say there's a lot of uh, fishing going on that the medium is sitting there, you know, trying to bait the person to get information out of him or her. But what that fishing was in the case of Mrs. Piper was it was the spirit control, Dr. Finney, trying to interpret what the, the the deceased person was giving him. You know, he'd, he'd be saying, you know, what um, if he couldn't get a name, he would, you know, give or might does it begin with a B and and try to get the name by process of elimination, and so that the debunkers say this is all fishing but it's, it's just it is fishing because the because the the spirit control can't get the information directly he's having a hard time understanding the uh, yes deceased person yeah. so he has to you know narrow it down well, this is um I, I frankly this is one of the areas that I'm most interested in talking about so I I'd like to talk also about um, Gladys Osborne Leonard when we come back. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes on the Contact Talk Radio Network. Our guest is the wonderful Michael Tim and we'll be right back. eight, Roberta Grimes had an amazing experience of light. She spent the next 50 years researching the afterlife to try and understand what had happened to her. And the result is her book, The Fun of Dying. Find out what really happens next. Roberta's book is cliff notes to 200 years of abundant and consistent afterlife evidence. It will show you why extinction is impossible for you, explain how you can enjoy the death process, and describe for you in wonderful detail the glorious heaven that awaits us all. Available on Amazon, in Kindle, and in print, The Fun of Dying will start you on a thrilling and life-affirming voyage as you learn the glorious truth about who you really are. If you've ever wondered why you're here, if you wonder whether God is real, if you wonder why life isn't fair or whether there's life after death, let Roberta Grimes help you learn the joyous truth about your own reality. Roberta has trouble with believing things. She's always wanted to know. So she spent decades studying nearly 200 years of afterlife evidence. In the process, she made some wonderful discoveries about God, reality, and your own eternal nature. The truth is better than your most optimistic hopes. Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes on Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Why wonder and worry when at last it's possible to know? Welcome back to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes on the Contact Talk Radio Network. And we're talking with Michael Tim. Michael is, um, in my opinion, the leading expert on the afterlife. 
uh, right now. Um, we, well, while he's with us, we want him to do as much work as he can on the on it from here because he's he just gave us a history of the 19th century um, uh, efforts at trying to understand the afterlife, beginning with Benjamin Franklin, who seems to have been a start of a lot of things in his pre-death and post-death life, um, and and coming up now to look at at um, um, this, this book that he wrote this year about uh, Leonora Piper. And I, frankly, have been most interested in, in a slightly later deep transmedium, but the whole phenomenon of deep transmediums is to me very interesting. Um, as Michael says, they didn't uh, read people's minds. They weren't... I, I, if, you, if you go to John Edward or someone like that, his, he is in mental contact with his control. His control is in mental contact with your dead relative. So that's they're sort of a, they're playing telephone. If you know children in a circle playing telephone, they're trying to get those thoughts through, but they go through several filters. When someone is a deep trance medium, such as Mrs. Piper, and, and these were relatively common in the latter 19th, early 20th century. They're, they almost don't exist now, and there, I think there are reasons for that we can talk about. But what, what they did was to withdraw from their bodies and allow their dead control, a psychic person, to literally take over the mechanism of their bodies and speak using their vocal cords. Um, and they were still, that, that control was still a medium who, or, or a dead person who was in contact with your dead relatives. There were still, as, as Michael points out, there were still difficulties in making sure they got the information right. But it seems to me, don't you think, Michael, it's a more direct form of mediumistic communication, more detailed information as possible? Yeah, definitely. I mean, most people today um, who are familiar with John Edward and the Long Island medium and Lisa, I think Lisa Williams is probably the best one I've seen on TV. I don't know how much, um, you know, goes on behind the scenes with her, but, you know, she she's sort of my favorite TV medium. Uh, but they're nothing like the old trans mediums. But even the trans mediums like Leonora Piper and Gladys Osborne and Leonard I don't think they were as good as the direct voice mediums. Uh, direct voice no. mediums didn't even talk themselves. They uh, direct voice was sort of a combination of, of uh, physical mediumship, um, in that the spirits supposedly molded a larynx or a voice box yes. out of the ect- ectoplasm and could speak uh, right through. The voice usually came out four or five inches above the. Um, medium's head, and the medium was not talking, the medium's mouth was not moving, um, and sometimes the medium could be talking to the person next to him or her as the voices were coming out, and the voices sounded very much like, you know, the people's voices when they were alive. So that that was even better than trans voice medium. Edda, Edda Wright is, was my favorite in, in that uh type of mediumship, but there were also, you know, automatic writing and, and uh, direct writing and, and physical mediumship in which, which bodies materialized and talked, and there, there was just so much of it that we don't hear of now. I mean, there, some of it's still going on. There's still physical mediumship going on. You, I, you hear reports of it around the world. It doesn't seem to be as developed, and, and the debunkers say, well, you know, if, well, you know, if it was, you know, existed back then, why doesn't it exist now? And I think there are a combination of reasons, the main one being that it takes time to develop. And this most of the good mediumship was before 
um, all the forms of entertainment we have now, television, radio, right. computers, and everything else. And people had nothing else to do but sit around. You know, when it got dark, they sat around in their, under candlelight and either read a book or looked into the fire and with a fire blazing in front of them, they sort of went into a deep trance and, and uh, uh, they were more open to this thing. And, you know, once they realized they had the ability, they, they had a lot of quiet time to develop it. And um, But today there are people who apparently have the ability, but they're so wrapped up in TV and their computers and everything else right. that, that it the spirits can't get through to them. So I, I think that, that's, that's the main right. reason. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I, it, it seems to have been a fad in the late 19th century uh, that uh, the gentlemen would be at their cards and their pipes after dinner and the ladies would go into a dark parlor and they'd do table tipping. Right. Uh, they all put their hands on the table and then they would ask the table questions and it would give them answers. And there would be one or two women at that table who were the the, the ones with the mediumistic ability, but they quickly developed it because they were spending hours in the dark with their hands on a table asking the table questions. And I think that's what where how Gladys Osborne Leonard got started. She went on from there to become uh, a deep trance medium. Um and, and as you say, they the the even though her voice her it's her body being used by in this case a dead Frenchman, he still needs to get that information from someone who's there in this in the same area that he is, but it isn't as simple as he he says, uh, you know, the the dead person says to him, you know, tell her uh, uh, the will is in the bottom drawer under the socks. Uh, he still has to sort of use what's in the mind of the medium to uh, bring that information. Uh, to, to together and and speak it. It was a much more complicated process, I think, that I appreciated. So so that's very helpful to me. Um, but they they spoke in the language of the people listening. Uh, the the Gladys Osborne Leonard's control was named Fida, and she was a Mesoamerican Indian who had died. I don't know a thousand years before, eight hundred years before, and they uh, she she had, she spoke funny apparently reportedly. But she spoke English, and she was asked at one point, "Why? how are you able to speak English? And she said, well, I'm not speaking English. I'm speaking my own language, but you hear me in English. Mm-hmm. And that struck me as so profound, because that's what they tell us is true in the afterlife as well, that we, our, even though we, we speak telepathically, um, we, but we're sort of communicating in whatever, in a, in a kind of universal language which everybody can perceive. Don't you find that so interesting, how it all sort of fits together? Yeah, I do, and it's it's very confusing, and I haven't completely <laughs> fit it all together yet. I mean, but that that's uh, that's the way it comes out. That um, you know, it, it's as I say, there's only one language in the afterlife, and that's uh, the thought, the, the image being portrayed by the person that's being picked up by the other person. Uh, yeah, it's all, it's all by thought, and it's very simple. It's, uh, you know, it's it's not as complicated as we make it out to be. We tend to think of that as being very complicated, but it's easy to them. What's difficult for them is for them to take the thought and translate it into words. Yes, yes. but uh, And they, they, the people who have that skill apparently are rare enough there, just as they are rare enough here, that um, it is something which isn't, as you say, it's sort of happening here and there. We hear about it all over the world, but 
it's a very, very difficult thing for them to do. And you, you point out something else, which to me is, is important people, for people to remember. Most of the initiative in communication has come not from people here, but from people there. Uh, they've been trying very hard ever since Dr. Franklin, bless his heart, uh, ever since the early part of the 19th century, they've apparently been trying very hard to come up with ways to, to communicate with us that we would recognize and to give us evidence that we would be able to recognize and use as proof of their existence, as proof that they're alive. It's been their initiative, not ours. And, right. and, and I, the big problem they've had has been finding people who would stick with it long enough and work with them and have, of course, mean a mystic ability so that they would be able to get this information through to us. It's not been easy for them. Right. And I, I think there have been three three phases of, of mediumship since 1848 uh, when the Fox sisters uh, brought it all to the surface. And the, the first 30 years before the SPR was formed, there was a lot more than evidential information coming out. That the spirits were trying to re-educate us. Uh, they, they were trying to teach us and give us truths of you know what the afterlife is about and what life is about and so forth. And they weren't all that concerned with you know evidential part of it at first. And then because it wasn't being accepted, and sometime, you know, around 1882 when the SPR was formed, they said, okay, we're not getting through to these guys. Let's try and give them some evidential information. So that's when Mrs. Piper and Mrs. Leonard and many other evidential-type mediums came around, and so they gave us the evidence. But it's still, you know, mainstream science wasn't accepting because... Um, uh, it just didn't. Uh, they couldn't reconcile all this with their their new uh, beliefs in science and so forth. And religion wasn't accepting it because it all seemed demonic. The Old Testament says you don't talk to the dead, and right. the dead, dead know nothing, and and all that. And uh, so they were caught between a rock and a hard place. I mean, the people who believed in this. I mean, you had re- religion on one side and science on the other, and so it was very difficult to make progress. And so. Sometime around 1930, I think the spirits gave up. They, they, they said, you know, we've given you all that we can give you. Uh, we reach, we're far past the point of diminishing returns. So at that point, that's when Dr. Ryan came in and turned it all to a study of ESP. They started counting cards and, and uh, just trying to verify, you know, trying to confirm that extrasensory perception exists. Forget about whether you know, there's life after death, you know, the consciousness survives death. Let's just find out if uh, people can telepathically talk to each other and so forth. And and that's pretty much where it's, where it's remained. If you talk to parapsychologists today who are so much, you know, really involved with studying ESP, uh, it's almost taboo to talk to them about um, life after death. It's like, you know, we don't want to talk about that. Uh, we're we're still that trying awful? to figure out, yeah, and... Half of them don't believe in life after death anyway because uh, um, they're, they're, they still you know, are stuck in that scientific paradigm that uh, says it's not possible. So we've never, never really recovered. I mean, um, we don't seem to have made any progress um, over the years. We're back to where we were in 1850, if not much ahead of that anyway, but... Uh, I like to think we're, we're where we were in about 1920. I guess I'm a little more hopeful than you yeah, are. But, yeah, maybe. But, but basically, you're right. Um, for somebody researching in the latter part of the 20th century, as you and I apparently both were, um, researching this, 
you, you you found the best evidence in these dusty old tomes and and old archives um and and you said what this has been around this information has been around for a hundred years and nobody's nobody knows it this is the most important piece of information i hold in my hand that you could possibly have for everybody on earth and it's been ignored for a hundred years yeah I, I, it, it's horrifying. It, it makes you feel, I, I, I have to say, I, it, I've been very impatient about getting this information out because people need it so desperately. People are in despair. People, people are afraid to die. People don't believe that their loved ones live on. There's so much pain that comes from this, as you say, this, the, the fact that the spirits sort of gave up, although they seem to have resurrected their interest somewhat again. But it's it's frustrating to them and frustrating to us that science and religion are both blocking it when people need this information so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know I'm thrilled thrilled to have had you here. We're going to have to do this again because we have so much more we need to talk about. Um, sure. We're coming we're coming toward the end of of our time um, uh, this time. Is there something you especially want to make sure people understand about what your work and what you're doing? Well. No, I, I, you, you call me a researcher. I'm not really a researcher per se. I'm a journalist just, uh, you know, digging into the old works and, and uh, trying to make sense of them. So many of them are written by um, academicians that, uh, you know, they get pretty stuffy at times and are hard to figure out. And that, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book about Leonora Piper. I tried to put it in plain English. Uh, academicians, they tend to take an inductive approach and, you know, you start at the beginning of the book, so-and-so was born here and there, and, and you don't get to the punchline till the end of the book. I, As a journalist, uh, yes. I, I, I studied journalism in college, and, and you know, you, you, you get to the point first, and then go back, and you take, take a more of a deductive approach, and that's what I've tried to do with my book about Leonora and, and my other books, is to tell you right up front what this book is about and how they got to it, and then, then explain how it all came about. Um, but I, I would like to say that you know, if anybody's interested in the books, uh, when when you say my last name is Tim, people are inclined to might put T I M into a to a Google search or whatever. My my last name is spelled T Y M N. Just uh, it's an offshoot of the word him H Y M N. My grandfather, when he, we came over to the United States, when he came in 1905, it was spelled T Y M C Z Y S Z Y N. Ukrainian, this is easier. <laughs> Ukrainian name, and so he cut it down to Tim. When you're sitting in church one day and saw the word him, and people still don't get it right, they call it Timon and Time so and whatever it's else. Michael so. Tim, Michael Tim, and and it's resurrecting Leonora Piper and the afterlife revealed. Two wonderful books, and we've come to the end of our hour. I'm Roberta Grimes. Please join us next week when our guest is going to be Dr. Gary Schwartz once again. Um, he is a force to be reckoned with. Now go out and enjoy and make the most of this coming week in our one reality knowing that you are an eternal being and you are perfectly loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes, joyous conversations about your eternal life. To learn more, tune in every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. For lively and positive discussions, visit www.afterlifeforums.com. To contact Roberta, email her at roberta at seekreality.com. 
wishing you a productive week empowered by the truth of who you really are.